Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 11. Our study tonight will be the whole chapter. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, Second Chronicles chapter 11. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and did not go against Jeroboam. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem, and he built cities for defense in Judah. He built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bezur, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Merisha, Ziph, Dariam, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aijalon, and Hebron, fortified cities that are in Judah and in Benjamin. He made the fortresses strong and put commanders in them and stores of food, oil, and wine, and he put shields and spears in all the cities and made them very strong. So he held Judah and Benjamin. And the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to him from all places where they lived. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made and for those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord of God of Israel. They came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Rehoboam took as wife Mahaloth, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and Abihael, the daughter of Eliab, the son of Jesse, and she bore him sons, Jehu, Shemariah, and Zaham. After her, he took Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, who bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shalomith. Rehoboam loved Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, above all his wives and concubines. He took 18 wives and 60 concubines and fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. And Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Maacah, as chief priest among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. And he dealt wisely and distributed some of his sons through all the districts of Judah and Benjamin and all the fortified cities, and he gave them abundant provisions and procured wives for them. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, on our first reading of this chapter, we may well wonder, what does this have to do with us? And it has everything to do with us, because it reveals your ways and your graciousness when your people turn their faces towards you. Lord, as we read here of those who came and they sought the Lord, let us be those who seek you, because we know you will, we will find you, and we will have all things if only we have you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you're familiar with First and Second Kings and the record that takes place there, then you'll see what's going on here at this point in Second Chronicles. We've had Solomon's glorious reign, and now Rehoboam has come king, and you will say, ah, I recognize this pattern. 
He had all the glories of the reign of David, the man of faith, of Solomon, who in so many ways was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now a trend of unbelief is setting in, and with it comes divine judgment. It's all going to end in the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. Well, our chapter tonight reminds us that the purpose of the chronicler actually is not that purpose. He has a different aim than to record the reasons for the fall of Jerusalem and of uh, the Old Testament people. I've sometimes said the subtitle of Kings would be, how did we end up in captivity in Babylon? But that is not the subtitle of the book of Chronicles. The chronicler is writing after the Babylonian captivity. It's during the years of the restoration of Jerusalem. And his purpose is to notice those occasions when even the foolish kings of Judah would turn to the Lord and they would obey him more or less. And even they, even Rehoboam, when he does that, will discover blessing from the Lord. Gordon McConville writes that the chronicler has included this report of the period of Rehoboam's piety in pursuit of his, the chronicler's, careful policy of showing that uniformly piety is rewarded with blessing. This is a gospel chapter we're reading tonight. It's actually not found, this material, except for the very beginning, is not found in the record of Kings. And yes, the chronicler is reinforcing the Bible's overall teaching. I like to say this, that the path of obedience is the path of blessings. We're not saved by obedience, but you want to walk in the way of the Lord. And he blesses his people. But he has another point to make as well. He wants to demonstrate that everyone, no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, possesses a way back to God, to the path of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see that worked out in this chapter. Even though the pride and the folly of Rehoboam has lost him, 10 of Israel's 12 tribes. It's a political sundering of the nation that is never healed. He managed this within the first few days of his reign. But he shows obedience afterwards, and that results in the spiritual strengthening of his people. Really, there's three portions of this chapter. Verses 1 to 12 show Rehoboam listening to the word of the Lord. He obeys God's command not to launch an invasion on the northern tribes. Then secondly, verses 13 to 17 show how he is strengthened then by the pilgrims who come from the northern tribes to be associated with the house of David and worship according to the true religion in the temple. And then finally, third, the final verses, verses 13 to 17, show him as as establishing his line through marriages that are within the line of David. He has male offspring to ensure the continuation of his kingdom. And see, through this example, the chronicler wants to remind his own generation of that truth that was spoken by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Well, let's look at these three main sections of uh, Second Chronicles chapter 11. Remember, the previous chapter concluded with the ten northern tribes breaking away. Rehoboam foolishly sent as his negotiator the man who'd been the slave driver, the taskmaster, and they stoned him to death. He, he himself had to flee back to Jerusalem. But he was left with two tribes, and Benjamin and Judah, and Judah was a very strong tribe. And with their strength, his intention is to invade the north, 
to enforce his rule with the sword. Look at verse 1. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. So he musters the strength of the two southern tribes. This is actually going to be the largest military number recorded in Chronicles. 180,000 he raises. Not to fight the enemies of God. Oh, no. But to fight others of God's people who do not accept his leadership. I think it's very telling to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. His own prestige, his own position. That is what is intent. They stoned his taskmaster, but now he will give them a show of strength that he hopes will cow them into submission. Now let's just notice right now how contrary Rehoboam's methods are to the biblical principles of spiritual leadership. The great biblical metaphor for godly leadership is that of the shepherd. The shepherd and his sheep. The shepherd does not lead by compulsion. He serves the flock. He has authority over the flock, but he feeds them, he protects them, he guides them. His whole definition of success is is determined by the well-being and the safe arrival of the flock. Well, that's not what we see here. No, it's compulsion. It reminds me of the late 20th century when so many of the denominations, the Protestant denominations, were breaking up. The Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the Methodists, pretty much all the old denominations broke up. And almost without fail, I think without fail, the liberal versions, the the liberals who, who the evangelicals were fleeing, those who departed from the gospel, they enforced their claims with compulsion. If you wanted to leave, if you went to them and you said, look, our consciences tell us that we need to obey the word of the Lord, they would say, well, forfeit your building. They would say, hand over X millions of dollars. And they were wise, more or less. The the calculation the evangelicals made was, you take the buildings, we'll take the Holy Spirit. That was a good deal. But by that compulsion, I mean, we were in Philadelphia. There was a a godly Anglican minister who'd taken a stand for the word of the Lord. And while while he and his family were out to lunch, the church came and not not his congregation, the hierarchy came and chained the locks on his home. That's the spirit here of Rehoboam. It's compulsion. Well, how wonderful that Jesus does not come to us that way. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My friends, Jesus is not going to compel you to be saved. He's going to offer you to be saved. But salvation, with a regenerated heart, we come willingly. Spiritual leadership is not that of compulsion. It should never be that way in our church. The church exercises spiritual and declarative, ministerial and declarative authority. The church may have to make a declarity about your faith or lack that of, but the church does not impose secular sanctions on anyway. What does Peter say? Shepherd the flock. That's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you to do, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Well, that's not a very good start for Rehoboam, but God is faithful to his people. And we know that because he sent a prophet to give his word to the king. They're actually mustering the army for this invasion against their own people. And we read this in verses 2 to 4, but the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel in Judah and Benjamin, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up to fight against your relatives. 
Return every man to his home, for this thing is from me. Now, the, this thing is the division of the tribes. It was God's judgment on Solomon, really, for the idolatries he had done. And it would not, actually, in First uh, Kings, the, the rationale God gives is, for the sake of David, I won't do it during Solomon's time. But after Solomon, it will happen, and the whole Jeroboam rebellion was orchestrated by the Lord. You remember Jeroboam had been approached by a prophet telling him what was going to happen. Now, what's interesting is here, yet again, Rehoboam had not consulted God's word. We ought to be reading. And Rehoboam sought the man of God and said to him, what is the word of God for me? But that's not what he does. What folly it is when we don't do that, when we don't seek the word of the Lord. Well, God is faithful, and he sends his word to Rehoboam. Do you realize what an act of mercy it is? When God causes his word to be preached faithfully, you may not like it. I know very well that it's my duty to preach sermons that you may not like. But that's God giving you his word. It's his mercy to tell us his truth from his word. And there's a number of reasons why we can think of why, in addition to the fact that this was of the Lord, why the Lord is commanding Rehoboam, you are not to take your army, Rehoboam, and to march north and make war on the other tribes of Israel. Now, one reason is they were still Israel. One big point being made here is although the division had taken place, the tribes of Israel were still Israel. And they were under God's care. They're going to come under God's judgment. But they're for God to deal with. That, that, that the two parts were to live in kinship with one another. You know, there will be times when, for godly reasons, Christians will separate. A lot of people have problems with denominations. I don't have a problem with denominations. Uh, we have different convictions. We take, take our, our Baptist brothers and sisters. They have a different view of the sacrament to whom it should be applied. And the wisdom is have different denominations. If we were all together, we'd have a fight every time a baby was born. And depending on who was ministered, who was preaching that week. And, but we should never think that the kingdom of Christ is, is limited by our denominations. So uh, rather than the minimum amount that we can fellowship with people who are in different denominations, it ought to be the maximum amount uh, based upon our fidelity to God's word and a shared mission. And they're to have that identity, that idea. Second of all, we're going to learn in a few minutes that it was God's intention that the godly people, or many of them out of the ten northern tribes, would voluntarily migrate from those regions to come and be under the house of David, remembering the promises God had given to the line of David, remembering the temple. And that was not going to happen if there was a war going on. And so the Lord had this in view. And furthermore, unity among believers must always be through the spiritual influence of God's word, not by compulsion. We struggle for unity in the church, even within a denomination today, and there's always different strategies, usually some form of compulsion, usually involving money and positions of power and prestige. The only unity that matters is unity in Christ, unity in the word of God. Sometimes there's secondary issues, and they're not as important, but as there's a fundamental conviction that here we stand, we can do no other. That's the only basis of unity we'll ever have. Unity in the word of God. Well, Andrew Hill writes, the kingdom was God's to grant to whom he wills, not Rehoboam's to seize by force. Martin Selman adds, God's will was peace even in a divided kingdom. 
The natural human inclination is to fight, to preserve the old order, but God calls us to peace. Well, I think Rehoboam's father, Solomon, would give the comment on this. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What are we to do if we have plans? We're sure of them. Maybe we're offline. Maybe we don't understand we're offline, but it's clear, like Paul, when he wanted to take the gospel to Asia in Acts 16. And what if the Lord is not given? We receive it in faith. We bow before the Lord. And we seek his word for direction. Now what's amazing, this is all part of the first point, the really amazing thing is that Rehoboam actually listens. He actually heeds this command that comes to him from the prophet uh, Shemaiah. That's a remarkable thing given everything we've heard about Rehoboam to this point. But look at verse 4. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and did not go against Jeroboam. Now I do want to point out the use of that word, they. The text does not say Rehoboam listened to the word of the Lord. And I do think the impression is not that, that Rehoboam, the prophet, comes, Rehoboam hears the message and he gathers the people and gives a, a speech. Brothers and sisters, our only unity is in the word of God. We need, we need to, I don't think that's the impression we're getting. I think it was quite the other way, that the people were leading. But there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. If for all the servants of God, it's the, it ought to be the people who stand with him. And, and, and there's a leadership from the pulpit, but there's a leadership from the pew as well that says, every time you say to your preacher, preach the word, pastor, you're providing spiritual leadership to the church. I think that's what's going on here. We must listen to the word of the Lord. Well, my friends, that's what we must do. We must do and not do as he commands. You know, it is Christ we believe that Christ is the king of his church. But my friends, if he is king, he rules through his word. The church is following the leaders of the church. We have a meeting of our leaders uh, tomorrow night, and I often will point out at those meetings, and the session's, of course, in agreement with this, that it is as we listen to the word of the Lord, willing to change, willing to set a course, follow the course that he has set, We came up with a mission statement a while ago for the church. We got it from the mission he gave us, the Great Commission. It's he who gives the mission to the church. We must do or not do as he commands. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It ought to be the case individually as we're studying the Bible daily and week to week that we find ourselves going, whoa, I'm really not in line with that. I've been thinking something else or I've been doing something else or I've not been doing it. And what thing we need to do is to say the, Lord is, the Lord's ways are right. It's not God's word that needs to change, nor is it going to. I need to be willing to change. I need to listen to the word of the Lord. Well, that's what they did. They went back to their camps. Now, Rehoboam equips himself well after this. He turns away from his plans of invasion, probably because he no longer had an army. And what he had directed his energies to then was fortifying his now smaller kingdom. Look at verses 5 to 12. He lived in Jerusalem. He built cities for defense in Judah. And we're told the cities. There's 16 of them. Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bezur, Soko, Agilom, Gath, Merashah, Ziph, Adoraim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Aijalon, and Hebron. 
uh, both in Judah and in Benjamin. Now, what's interesting is you would think, in line of the context, that these border, these fortresses are on the border between Judah and now Israel, the southern and the northern kingdom. That's not where they were. They were actually a perimeter south of Jerusalem. You have some guarding the coastal roads. You have some guarding the eastern approaches. For the most part, this is a rather small perimeter. You know, Bethlehem and Hebron, they're not that far from Jerusalem. It suddenly, the once great king of Israel under Solomon, he controlled from the Wadi of Egypt to the, to the Euphrates River. Now he's got a cordon of fortresses pretty close to Jerusalem. It's all that he is sure that he can hold. Now, why is that? Clearly, he has in mind, as we will see in the next chapter, the looming threat of Egypt. You know, the world knows when the church is strong and the church world bides its time. The world also knows when the church is weak. And the division of Israel had made Judah weak. He'd lost most of his economy. Uh, the skilled labor, the, the, the bureaucracy, as it were, was in the south in Jerusalem, but the farmland was in the north. And he's economically crippled his country. He doesn't have anywhere near the military resources. Moreover, if you remember, Jeroboam was an ally of Egypt. In fact, I think the Lord, in in denying him the right to attack, may have been sparing him. Because when he marched his army north against Israel, the back door would have been wide open. And Egypt was the sponsor state of Jeroboam. Well, the golden age of Solomon evaporated so quickly. Do we realize if we turn away from the Lord how quickly we can lose so much? And Judah is exposed in its weakness The historian George Rawlinson writes, Awake to these perils, Rehoboam, after his return to Jerusalem, lost no time in strengthening the defenses of his kingdom. Let me say that that was the right thing to do. There was a threat, and so he took care to preserve the the people under his care. We should be doing that. When When the world is threatening, there should be defenses that are made. I'm reminded of John Calvin in the later stages of his ministry when he was aware in the Protestant Reformation that the Roman Catholic forces of the the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Emperor Charles, were gathering to sweep the nations who turned to the Reformation. And Calvin had a problem, namely the split between Zwingli and Luther over the sacrament. I won't do the whole story, but if you know the, the colloquy of Marlborough over a fairly small detail, the result is the German princes will not lend their armies to the Swiss because of this difference between Zurich and, and Wittenberg. And Calvin sits there and realizes because of this, they could lose it all to a, to a uh, invasion of the uh, Holy Roman Emperor. And I, I read a wonderful biography of Calvin recently that shows how much ink he spilt in letters trying to breach the matter. And he's very clear, we need to pull together. It is true that in times of persecution and open assault, the true Christians, despite secondary differences, we need to stand together. Rehoboam is going to build the fortresses. That's what we see him doing. He's to be praised for doing it. Well, he appears here as a wise builder in the spirit of his father Solomon. He carefully places, he fortifies, he provisions these fortresses. Uh, you see, what's happened when we, when, we, when we are adhering to God's word, you'll find this to be true. When we're studying God's word, we gain an understanding of our situation. Uh, 
And we're able to exert energies productively. A church that is built on the word of God. It knows how to be the sons of Issachar that understood the times and to react with energy. Now in the chronicler's time, or more or less his time, you'll see Nehemiah do something very similar. He built up the walls of God's city. Matthew Henry sagely says, if we are not allowed to be conquerors, let us then resolve to be builders. It's a good word for our generation. As I read the tea leaves of Providence, I pray for better. It does not seem that the Lord is creating new open opportunities for widespread growth. We pray for revival. What do we do when the threats are looming? We build. We build churches. We strengthen in the word of God. We build Christian institutions, Christian universities, seminaries, Christian schools, other things. We build. We fortify. This is what Rehoboam here is praised for doing. Now, all that comes under the heading of Rehoboam, turning to the Lord, hearkening to his word, probably with some help, and then zealously doing the work the Lord had given him. Now, the reason the chronicler is telling us this is because of what happens next. Here's where the the gospel perspective is found. Because what happens then is that unforeseen blessings, unlooked-for strength arrives. And this won't happen. For Christians and churches that attend to God's word, we we serve the church with great industry, what we will find, you will find this in our personal lives, that God sends unforeseen help. God had not abandoned his temple. He had not abandoned the house of David. He provides now spiritual resources to uphold them in their trials. It starts at verse 13. And the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel presented themselves to him from all places where they lived. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat idols and for the calves that he had made. Well, it's a sad story what we see in Jeroboam. First Kings makes it clear that the Lord was really giving him an opportunity to establish a divinely blessed dynasty. And the Lord comes to him through a prophet and says, If you will walk in my ways, I will confirm my promises through you. And immediately he does the opposite. You can read of this in First Kings 12, 25 to 33. Practically the first thing he does is he builds the golden calf at Bethel. He puts one on the eastern side of the Jordan at Dan as well. Bethel's 12 miles north of Jerusalem. It's on the border of the northern tribes and their southern kingdom. And his thinking was, if I let the people go to Jerusalem to worship, where the house of David is, where the temple is, and the sacrifices, well, they'll get it back in their minds that that's the center of gravity. And it won't be our kingdom that's so special. So to preserve my political power, what I will do is I will erect a false worship and get rid of the true preachers of the word, get rid of the Levites. We'll create our own priesthood and he builds golden calves. In fact, this is the only passage where we're told that he actually made idolatrous goats. He's following the pagan ways. You know, Jeroboam is a very familiar figure in history. Every political figure who uses religion for ultimately political gains has no intention of honoring the Lord, no intention of establishing godliness, no intention of preserving true worship and submitting himself. It's just a game. He's playing a religious game, manipulating the people so he will have power. He walks in the spirit of Jeroboam and the, the, the destiny of Jeroboam is likely to be his end. 
It's a tragic story. But here the story, in light of that, is the faithful ministers who rally to the cause of God's word. Here's one of God's greatest blessings in times of trial to the church. Faithful ministers who sacrificially rally to the cause of God's word. The Levites of the northern tribes remembered the word of the Lord. They remembered the Davidic covenant. They remembered the temple and the sacrifices there. And they refused to engage in idolatry. And so they left their homes. They left their livings. They went south, out of the northern tribes, their own people, to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the appointed sacrifices that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And they did this at real loss to themselves. They left their common lands and their holdings. Now this is the biblical doctrine of separation. They would not abide false doctrine. They would not participate in manifest ungodliness. They would not join into idolatrous gospels, false gospel. They did what we must do. They left. Matthew Henry comments what a comfort it was to them that God's word reminded them that the Lord was their inheritance. That was a particular blessing of the Levites. I will, I will be their inheritance. And they remembered that. And they, but we should not discount what it means to leave your families, your neighbors, your communities, your, 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 the very land and house where your generations had been founded, all that you'd invested, and they went to the house of the Lord. Well, by doing that, they blessed themselves. They avoided temptation to compromise and apostasy. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who would, whoever who would save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Notice Jesus says, and for the gospels. Mark eight thirty four to 35. We must be where the word of God is taught. In 1662, England's King Charles II enforced what was called the Act of Uniformity upon the churches of England. Uniformity was a requirement that they would follow the doctrines and the practices of the the compromised Church of England under his rule. And on one single Sunday, an event took place called the Great Ejection as thousands of faithful Puritan preachers, Thomas Watson, people like that, uh, 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 well, I can't think of the name, many of them, many godly, godly men. We read their books today and they preach. I actually have a book called Farewell Sermons, the sermons preached by the Puritan divines on the Sunday they abandoned. It's not just their churches and their ministry. It was their living. It was their source of funding. It was their occupation. And they preached the word of God to their congregations. They didn't want to leave their congregations. They had no choice but to part because of the word of the Lord had been outlawed. What a disaster that was for England. What a disaster it was for the northern tribes. That the faithful Levites, because here's what happens. The worst thing that can befall any people is that the word of the Lord is no longer preached. It was a disaster for England. Uh, By the way, they began writing books. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is written in the aftermath. He's in prison for preaching without the act of uniformity. And there he writes Pilgrim's Progress. The Lord brought great spiritual fruit out of the great ejection. But what the Spurgeon later said, that, that England frankly never recovered 
from the removal of the faithful Puritans from the churches of England. Now, this event explains what subsequently happens in the northern kingdom. If you know the record of First and Second Kings, not a single king, starting with Jeroboam until the final king, uh, Hosea, when the northern kingdom is destroyed, not a single one of them is godly. Not a single one of them walks in the ways of the Lord. How could they? They had driven the faithful preachers out of their land. Well, Gordon McConville writes, Rehoboam at least had maintained the legitimate institutions. In contrast to Jeroboam, he had the ministry of the temple. He had the throne of the house of David. You know, the Jeroboams of this world will always think first about worldly strength, size of armies, amount of taxation, the GNP, the GDP, you name it, forgetting the Lord. But notice that when God is blessing the people, he gives them spiritual resources. What an infusion to strengthen and establish it. Jeroboam had not not asked for it, but the Lord sends him legions of faithful Levites to come and pursue true religion. And with them, look at verse 16. look, Look who went with them. Because with them came the pious believers of the northern tribes and those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now notice that it is a zealous, godly people supported by faithful ministers who who supply the real strength and support both of the church and of a nation. What a wonderful description of these pious people who left their homes. They sought the Lord God of Israel. Here's what it's saying. They wanted God's word. They chose a place where they could have a church where the Bible was preached rather than a place where they could make a lot of money, be near family, and yet not have the word of God preached. That's what they did. They prioritized in their lives their participation in true churches where the gospel was preached. That's what they did. They wanted their hope in the knowledge of the Lord and his salvation. What a benefit to their children. Well, they may have been raised a little, with a little less money, maybe with a lot less money, but they were raised knowing God, uh, hearing the word of the Lord, being part of a faithful church. You know, we should do that. We should put the Lord, the, the pursuit of the Lord, seeking the Lord ahead of family, friends, material benefits, especially when we're pursuing a church. And what folly it is to say, I know my church doesn't worship faithfully. I know we don't preach the word, but I get good business connections there. You see, it's the choice of Esau versus Jacob who sacrifices a covenant for bowls of porridge. They sought the Lord. Notice as well. They sought the Lord's sacrifices. That's specifically noted here. The sacrifices, of course, were the chief representation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They sought the atoning blood at the true temple that God had appointed. They sought Jesus Christ and the blood of his cross. That's what that means in redemptive history. And they walked in the way of David and Solomon. Verse 17. They lived by faith in God and his word. Richard Pratt writes, these defectors were the faithful Israelites whose hearts were devoted to pursuing the worship of God as he ordained it. Matthew Henry adds, by their piety and prayers, they procured a blessing upon the kingdom, which was a sanctuary to them. That's what we read in verse 17. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure, 
for they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. My friend, church strength does not come by worldly measurements. I sometimes talk about the evangelical way of determining a church's success, the ABCs of church success, attendance, buildings, and cash, and they're all good so far as they go. I don't know a single minister who'd rather have fewer people rather than, than, than more, who wants the church budget to be a mess, doesn't want good buildings, but they, none of them, are the source of the strength of a church. Surely the record of the last hundred years shows you can have all of that and you cannot have the Holy Spirit. You have no Christ, you have no salvation, you have no gospel, you have no spiritual power. Those things are not the strength of the church. Church strength does not come by finding out who the wealthy givers are and playing golf with them on your off days. It doesn't come from clever marketing. It doesn't come by adopting the latest fads of the culture so that we'll think that we're with it. No, it comes from a faithful people who seek the Lord. There's nothing like a faithful people who seek the Lord, who trust in Christ's blood and walk in godliness according to God's word. Therefore, the very approach the world disdains, namely the ordinary means of grace, they are the recipe for building a strong church that will endure in the lives of godly people. I I used to get, I think they figured it out. They no longer send them to me. But I used to get, and they're very glossy. It's a, it's a printing technique we can't afford to do. Multicolored, glossy church growth strategy conferences. And I would look at that. I'd look at that I'd look, I knew what it was going to be. But I would look at the speakers in the lineup, and it's things like this. Using sociological techniques to target your message to your community. It's one secular technique after another, seeking to appeal to ungodly consumers My friends, the strength of the church is a people who seek the Lord, who bring their sins to the blood of Jesus' cross, and who are resolved to walk in God's ways. John 6 is a great example. And Jesus feeds the 10,000. He's got his 12 disciples, and one of them is Judas. And he, he, he preaches them that great message of the sovereign grace of God, the bread of life discourse in John chapter 6. And the people don't like it because it's biblical. It's doctrine. I mean this reverently. It's Calvinistic. James Boyce preached a sermon from John 6. He got in trouble for it, calling it, the title of his sermon was Christ the Calvinist. He didn't mean that Christ was under Calvin. He just means these are the things Jesus preached. And the people left him. It was, it was, it was a Scotch revival, not a real revival. It was, it was, people abandoned him. And then at the end, John 6.60, Peter comes in and goes, this isn't working. I mean, everybody's going. And Jesus says, do you want to go with them? And Peter said, where shall we go? For you and you alone have the words of eternal life. I actually believe, and we experience this, that the very things that Second Chronicles is talking about, faithful, rigorous Bible teaching, the blood of Jesus Christ, salvation, biblical doctrine, meat, not just sugar-coated things, and the people who follow after him, it actually is successful. God blesses it. Those churches grow. But even if they don't, in a certain season, we should never depart from them. Because a handful of, Jesus said, I'd rather have 12 people who are a true church under my ministry. And I'm going to send them the Holy Spirit. I'm going to shock the world with those. I'm going to chant. And one of them, Judas, he gets replaced. He'll do far more than with 10,000, 20,000 consumers. 
The strength of the church comes from the people of God who seek and walk in his ways. Now, by the way, the chronicler is recording this because this is the message he's giving to his generation. You know, one of the things that's fascinating at the time in the late, early 5th century BC, probably around 475, when Chronicles was being written, the, 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 the very thing Isaiah had prophesied, Jer- Jerusalem had been reestablished, but Jerusalem was in ruins and they were poor there. They were lacking security. Nehemiah goes down to build the walls. At that time, the vast majority of Jews lived in Babylon. In fact, at the time of Christ, there were far more Jews in Babylon than there were in Palestine. Why? Because they'd built up suburbs there. They had, they'd, they'd, they'd invested. They're, they're smart. They'd built shopping malls, as it were. And people weren't willing to leave the material blessings in order to gain Christ. Well, what a support it was, whether he sought it or not, for Rehoboam to receive these people. See, it's God being faithful to his people, God being faithful to his covenant, God being faithful to Christ who's going to come from this. It does remind me of John Calvin in Geneva. Calvin ends up in Geneva. It had gone to the Reformation, but they really hadn't spiritually bought into it. He begins preaching the gospel, and the problem was was a church-state relationship. The The state was in charge of the church, so Calvin's trying to reform the church, and he can't get the votes. In fact, he gets kicked out of the church for three years. They, they finally get him to come back, but he's in constant. He, he tries to fence the Lord's table. That's a massive controversy. He almost gets killed in that. And he can't enforce a godly church until the exiles start rolling in. And the thing that allows Calvin to gain control of Geneva and have the big impact was those who'd fled the ungodly lands and came there because of his faithful preaching. And after two or three years, he had more votes than the liberals did. The very sort of thing happened in uh, Judah in the time of Rehoboam. Let me just point out as well, surely this speaks to Christian families. We need to be discerning about our lifestyle choices, about our churches. Andrew Stewart writes, we need to settle ourselves and our families where we will be able to attend a Bible-preaching church and enjoy the benefits of godly fellowship. Does that mean unless you have a particular calling to a place and there's no place for you to hear the word of the Lord without major compromise, no place for your children to grow up in a godly church, no opportunity to plant one, then you should move your family to a place where there is? I think it says that very thing. You should seriously think about it. I'm always delighted when someone says to me, we chose our location by the churches in that town. I went through that recently with a child picking graduate schools, and we not only looked at the which was more elite, which was more opportunities, we, in every case, where are we going to go to church? Where's the church that's going to be there? It must form a key part. When your child's going to college, ask yourself where they're going to go to church. Stuart writes, it means that we would remove ourselves from churches where false doctrine is preached and true discipline is not maintained. We should not underestimate the power of false doctrine and godless behavior to influence us. And we should never expose our children to it. Well, what a wonderful episode that is. There's one problem. We read that for three years they walked in the ways of the Lord. It's a little ominous, but we'll get to that in the next chapter. Well, let me get to the final point here. God's final blessing to strengthen the house of Judah came to Rehoboam himself in the form of sons who would carry on his royal line. And he seems to have had a concern, rightly, for the house of David because in verses 18 to 21, we read of his marriages 
And there's a number of them. God does not endorse polygamy. Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 19. But the Lord tolerates it and regulates it. But every one of these women he mentions that he marries are members of the house of David. You've got uh, Mahalath. She's the daughter of David's brother. You have Abihail. She's the daughter of... Uh, uh, actually, she's the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David. It's a cousin or uncle of Rehoboam that he's marrying. And then Abihail, she's the daughter of David's brother. There may be a generation in there. They may be granddaughters because the ages need to line up. These are all from the house of the line of David. And then he takes Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, and she bears him Abijah, Attai, Ziza, and Shelemoth. Now we're told that he loves Maacah the best. I think knowing a little bit about Rehoboam and about Absalom, we can know why, because Absalom was a very good-looking person. He had a, a woman noted for her fame. This is his granddaughter, not her daughter. His daughter, Tamar, a different Tamar, is noted for her beauty. I think we see why a man like Rehoboam liked her the most. He had 18 wives, 60 concubines. But what's being highlighted here is his resolve to buttress in his own line a commitment to the line of David. Now, this is a lot better than Solomon. No pagan women. You've got to give him credit. No pagan women here. These are, mem- these are Jewish girls. These are girls from the house of David. He is reinforcing his commitment to the line of God's covenant. And God blesses him blesses him with an abundance of sons. He secures a line. That's what the chronicler is emphasizing. Commit yourself to his way and he will bless you. Delight yourself on the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. The Lord has ordained trials for you and me. But if we will commit ourselves to his way and in his own weak way, Rehoboam's going, I'm only going to marry Jewish girls and I'm going to, I'm going to buttress the line of the house of David. He is rewarded by God with blessing. The chronicler is, of course, emphasizing in his own generation, when the kingdom is gone, that God is faithful to the line of David. It's out of this line that the promised Messiah was going to come. And then Rehoboam's wise were told that he spreads them out. He chooses Abijah, then he spreads the other sons out. He puts them in fortress cities and he gives them administrative responsibilities. Andrew Stewart writes, with the sun spread out throughout the country, they are far less likely to plot mischief. They're a place where they will do administrative good for the people. Interestingly, there's a contrast here. The son he chooses is named Abijah. That was also the name of Jeroboam's son. He knows you've, he, he thinks you've read Kings. And Jeroboam's son is taken by the Lord, actually because he's godly. That's the little boy who God removes because he's godly. Jeroboam does not benefit from his secular idolatry, but Rehoboam, for all of his flaws, his commitment to the Lord, produces an heir. Well, let me conclude by saying that there's a decisive moment in this passage that is also the decisive moment in our lives. It's this scene were the godly of the northern kingdoms. They leave their families, they leave their homes, and they go to the house of David. They go to the temple. They went to Jesus Christ. There's something going on here in covenant theology. You have a narrowing in the Old Testament that's looking forward to Christ. You start off with Adam and, the, and, God and Noah, the covenant with the whole world, and then God chooses Abraham. And now you must be in Abraham if you're going to be an heir of God's covenant. Then Abraham has his sons, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. That's the house of Israel. 
But then God makes his covenant with the house of David in the line of Judah. And suddenly, if you want to be saved, after the divided kingdom, you need to leave your homes and you need to go to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the house of David. And so in all the centuries after that, it's the Jews, the people of Judah, who are the people of God. This is where this is going. But then God's going to become even more particular. And in his final particularization, he opens the door to everyone. Because the day comes when the promised heir, the Lord Jesus Christ, is born. And suddenly, my friends, if you're a Jewish person, once Jesus has come, your Jewishness does nothing for you. You must be in Christ. What a thing it means for Jewish people to leave their traditions, their heritages, and to come and to, be, to renounce and be renounced, but to come to the one Christ and his new covenant. That's what every one of us must do. I wonder what the Lord, what you're fearing the Lord will ask you to do. If I become a Christian, I'll lose my reputation, I'll lose my career, I'll lose the enjoyment of my sins. Can I leave that old heritage behind and go down to where the blood is shed my friend you must you must and if you do see the faithfulness of God he will enrich you in the things of eternal life you will have in Christ an inheritance that will never fail and so this leads us to the conclusion of our hymn my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Leave it behind. Come to Jesus and you will be saved. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and your blessing on it. We thank you for this remarkable experience. And Father, we're failures like Rehoboam. We mess up our priorities. But you remind us if we will only turn to you, if we will only seek you, if we will only look in your word to see the way of life, you are ready and eager to bless us far beyond any recompense for what we have done. And Father, we think of those pilgrims who went south to Jerusalem. They entered into the house of David. Lord, let us be in Christ. For it is in him that we have the true shelter, the one that will stand the day of judgment. In him, the good shepherd, we find eternal life. We pray in Christ's name, amen.